0: This is a Washington Post Live podcast from the Global Women's Summit with presenting sponsor AARP, empowering people to choose how they live as they age for more
1: than 60 years. You're listening to conversations from Washington Post Live's 2022 Global Women's Summit, featuring leaders and trailblazers from around the world.
2: I'm Tina Brown. And in the middle of so much world turbulence, it's so easy to forget the cauldron of protests that's happening right now in female-led descent in Iran. And we're very fortunate to have the two women you just saw in the video who don't allow us ever to forget. On my left here is Nazanin Bonyani, an Iranian-born actress, activist, and Amnesty International UK ambassador who uses her Hollywood platform to focus attention on the extraordinary events in Iran. And my old friend, journalist and activist, Masih Linejad, who was born and raised in Iran, forced into exile 13 years ago after all the trouble she kept making for the mullahs as a newspaper reporter. And she's since become a social media powerhouse, amplifying the voices of the women protesting in Iran. So Masih, for almost a decade, you've been agitating against this regime by challenging its mandatory hijab law. Your message has become really a revolution. Why did this happen now? And why was the death of this one young woman reporter, a young woman who, as we saw in the film, why is the death of of, of her so really become a tipping point?
3: Well, hi, everyone. Before actually uh, getting to answer this question, I really wanna actually ask you, everyone, single, um, simple question. Have you ever thought that a small piece of cloth can kill a woman? So that's the answer. Mahsa, I mean, he was only 22 year old. She got killed by morality police, by hijab police. If any of you here have no idea what morality police is, there are a bunch of police walking around and telling you, every single of you, cover yourself properly. And if you don't, then you will go to prison, or you get lashes, or you get killed, like these days in Iran yes, Tina, uh, you actually invited me many times to talk about my campaign. Well, I remember when I launched a campaign against compulsory hijab, many people in the West were saying that, you know, Middle East has got so many bigger problems. Or, uh, on the other hand, people were saying that this compulsory hijab is part of your culture, yeah. so we don't want to touch this issue, which was an insult to a nation when you call a barbaric laws part of our culture. So. But I have to say that women in Iran bravely practicing their civil disobedience for years and years and years. But the brutal death of Mahsa Amini created a huge anger because she was not part of any civil disobedience act or any protest. She was just walking and she was not even unveiled. The police went to her because she wore hijab, improper hijab, inappropriate hijab. And immediately when she got killed, Every teenager relate to her story, because it could have happened to anyone. Men, women relate to her story, and that's why it started from Kurdistan, but now across Iran, teenagers, schoolgirls, they're taking to the street and they're saying that you killed Mahsa, now we're all Mahsa. Yes, a revolution taking place in Iran, led by women. Right. It's just
2: blown up into flames. It's extraordinary. Nazanin, you were actually not born in Iran, but you've spent your life in the West, right? In, in, in London and California.
4: I was born in Iran. You were no, born in Iran, but you came <laughs>
2: to the, London and yeah. California. So what has really sort of planted the seeds for you to become such a passionate activist and, and stay connected, essentially, with you know, the culture that you're no longer living in?
4: Well, thanks for having us, Tina, and hello to all of you. Um, this is such an important moment for our country. Um, I, I always say the first... Protests that I attended, I was still in my mother's womb. She was 19 when she was pregnant with me in Tehran, and it was 1979. And she was one of those brave women who defiantly stood up against um, what she saw unraveling in the country, which was basically everyone being stripped of their rights, but particularly women and girls. Um, they, they were facing a social, legal uh, climate that was, you know, they were, they were having their rights stripped away from them, and we were lucky enough to, to be able to escape before my father was executed. He was on that execution list, um, but that revolutionary fervor of standing up against injustice was sort of ingrained in my social consciousness since I was zero years old, um, and then when I was 12, I went to Iran for the first time, um, and I, I spent two months there. I turned 13 in Iran, and we've traveled across the country, and... I remember having a run-in, a pretty harrowing experience with a morality policeman who approached myself and my 45, I was 12 at the time, my 45-year-old uncle was standing next to me, walking down the street, my mother two or three steps behind us, and we got stopped by the morality policeman and he demanded that we produce marriage certificate. Yeah, that's... A marriage certificate, and I thought, I'm 12, I'm already being forced to wear a hijab, that's not what I wanna do. And I'm, I'm being accused of being in a relationship with a 45-year-old man who is my uncle. And it was so harrowing and jarring. My mother, I remember, stepped forward and defended us and said, this, that's my brother and this is my daughter, and he just wouldn't have it, this, this, this guy. And I thought, that is the daily experience yes. of girls in Iran, you know, of being constant harassed. Constant harassment. Constant yeah, harassment. Yeah, yeah. So when I had the platform as an actress, I, I immediately wanted it,
2: to use it to amplify the, theirs. Well, the, the, the uh, Iranian actress Taraneh Ali Dustu, yeah. who starred in an Oscar winning film, uh, actually, she posted a photo of herself with her hair uncovered. That, that's a risky thing for someone who is such a prominent uh, woman in the public eye to do. I mean, what kind of a risk is she taking by doing something like
4: that? I mean, that's so extraordinarily brave. Uh, you know, we're seeing daily the videos coming out of Iran of what happens to women when they take their hijab off. And Katoyan Riyahi, another celebrated actress, uh, right at the start gave an interview to a news outlet outside of Iran without her hijab. And she said at best. She said, People are no longer afraid of prison because Iran itself has become a prison. But that's extremely brave,
2: what they're doing. Well, yeah, uh, it, it's, it's, it's really, uh, she's put her life in danger, essentially. Masi, you know, you and your and your family have paid a very, very steep price uh, for your activism, right? I mean, they, kept, they put your brother in prison,
3: correct? Yeah, for two years. Um, look, taking hostage is in the DNA of the Islamic Republic, you Americans know that after, right after the revolution, the first thing that the Islamic Republic did took American diplomats hostage. Mm-hmm. Yes, they released them, but they still, they have 80 million Iranians hostage. When they, I don't want to really talk about my family because my heart is broken when I see now that teenagers are getting killed in Iran. And uh, I, I really want to name them. Sarina was only 16-year-old. She took to the street to be the voice of Mahsa Amini. They killed her. Nika was only 16 years old She went to the street by burning her headscarf. She was leading the protest. They killed her. But more important than this, they brought their family on TV to denounce them publicly, to say that, you know, um, yeah, our daughters committed suicide. And I am familiar with this because I was the one watching my sister on TV denouncing me for 15 minutes. And they asked my mother to do it. My mom, as you know that because I told her story many times in Women in the World, she's not even able to read and write. But she's the true feminist. She said that in tiny village, if you come back to my house again and ask me to go on TV to denounce my daughter, I will set fire on myself and I kill myself. Mm. This is the true feminism in Iran. Every single woman, as Nazan and I, both following their stories, reading them, hearing them, every day we cry with them, but at the same time, we feel more powerful that they are leading the movement. They're not as scared of anything. They're like unbelievably powerful, Tina. It's like, wow, these are like the icons that we read about them in the books, in the history, but this historical revolution is happening in Iran right now, and I want you to be with them to be with us and to be their voices.
2: Well, I think we all are, there's no doubt about that, but what more can we all do? I mean, last week you, you met with uh, President Macron, uh, and, you know, these diplomatic visits, you always tend to think, well, what is really that gonna achieve, except, you know, for a sort of powerful photo opportunity? Is oh, this, me. you know, I mean, <laughs> There
3: you are. Casually. So, I mean,
2: what did you, I mean, what did it achieve for the movement to meet with Macron?
3: I mean, first of all, I have to say that, look, he's shaking my hand. I <laughs> made him to do it. Because only 50 days ago, he shaked the hand of Ibrahim Raisi, which the world called him president. But I want to ask every single of you, media are here. Please stop giving democratic title to dictators like Putin, like Khamenei, like Ibrahim Raisi. Yes, this is the time. So when I saw that President Macron, no, no, I really want to see his picture. (laughs) When I saw him shaking the hand of Ibrahim Raisi, it broke my heart. It made me angry. Nazanin, honestly, it didn't make you angry? Oh, extremely. I think every
4: Iranian who who wants freedom was angered.
3: Because more than 300 people got killed. I just had the request that, you know, this is the time. I want to meet with you. He accepted. But I said that I'm not going to just have a photo op. I invited young women, one of them Roya Pirayi. When she was meeting President Macron, she said that um, she actually brought a picture of her mother. She said that this is my mom, Ibrahim Raisi, killed her. Don't shake the hand of those who killed my mother. So what you say that, what we can do, you can do a lot. But let me be very clear. I'm not here to ask the Western countries, the leaders of G7, the leaders of democratic country to save us. But we are here to ask the democratic countries, stop saving our murderers. Stop saving the Islamic Republic. While teenagers are shaking this regime, stop shaking the hands of these murderers. And that's the first step. I asked President Macron to recognize the uprising as it is. It's a revolution. And he did. He asked the press, and he actually made a statement, and said he is the first one so far. He said that this is a revolution. But I have to say, he had explanation, long explanation, saying that France is all about diplomacy. <laughs> that's why I, I sh- as a head of the state, I shake the hand of uh, the president of Iran. I said, first, he is not the president, he's the butcher. Second, France is all about revolution. France has respect. Very sly. Yes, and actually he loved that. I bet That's he loved it. That's why he recognized the revolution. <laughs> so, listen,
2: what concerns me though now is, I mean, we, we're all in awe of, of, of this extraordinary courage. You know, we, we're rooting for you. But, you know, some 14,000 protesters have now been arrested. And yesterday, an Iranian court handed out the first death sentence to a protester. But, you know, Iranians are not backing down, but are we just gonna see this thing forcibly fizzle out with, you know, arrests, disappearances, and death, people moldering in prisons and executed silently? I mean, what do you see here? I'm seeing the first female-led revolution of our time. Um,
4: and, um, and, I, and, and here's where it's powerful and it's different from the past. Because what we're seeing is men and women standing shoulder to shoulder for a feminist cause, for freedom for women. And it's because Iranian society at large has recognized the intersectionality of gender equality and every other basic human right, which has been deprived from the Iranian people for 43 years. Um, The right to free expression, fair trials, due process, um, assembly, freedom of assembly, um, you know, not having torture, not having forced confessions, things that people are rising up against, minority rights, LGBTQ rights, all are connected to this movement. And women have managed to galvanize people and have Iranian society at large understand that intersection of their rights. So I think that's why it's powerful. I think it resonates with people outside of Iran in a major way because of movements like uh, the civil rights movement in America and Black Lives Matter and bodily autonomy, things that we all care about, and we understand the fragility of our freedoms. And that, I think, is resonating in a similar way that um, apartheid um, South Africa, when we all rised up to end apartheid in South Africa. That's what I see for Iran. I really think this is a moment for us.
2: Well, I mean the new development really is that the men are now really joining the women, correct? I mean how long did that take, Masih? Because when you, you first began to post videos of women taking off their hijabs, the men were not always supportive of women doing this at all.
3: I mean that's a very very powerful now when I see men are in the streets. Uh, there is there, a very powerful video of men walking toward security forces with open arm women are behind and saying that we're ready to sacrifice our life for the freedom of our sisters. I still get goosebumps. And um, one of the young men put a story of uh, a man standing in front and telling the woman with her hair down just to stay behind I will sacrifice my life for your freedom and that young man got killed. And her, his mother, was grieving but proudly saying that yes, you actually did what you promised. You know, I remember for years and years, um, yes, the Iranian regime used men against women, saying that you own your sister, you own your daughters, you own your mothers. Women are not allowed to go to stadium. And this is how Iranian regime oppressed women by using men. Now this revolution led by women, supporting by men, actually uh, you know, showing the rest of the world that these are the true face of Iran. It's unbelievable, unbelievable that women in Iran are not allowed to ride a bicycle. Women in Iran are not allowed to go to a stadium. Women are, are not allowed to get a passport without getting permission from their husband. Women are not allowed to dance. Women are not allowed to sing. Can you believe that? I have a good voice. I can sing for you. Oh. What, I mean, would you honestly, sing, what would you say? What would you sing if you were there now, Nasi? I mean, it breaks my heart that women cannot sing. What can I sing? man. <laughs> Sarzamine man, Dartman de Bidaboy, Sarzamine man, Be Ocean Agastam, Honabachon Agastam, Be Tohamishaboham, Shonabashon Agastam. Sarzamine man means my homeland, my homeland. You're very tired and exhausted. I cannot
2: translate. (laughs) (laughs) You two women, so seriously, we're so honored to have had you with us today. And uh, it's very moving to hear, and and very, very um, important that we keep behind you. And is there anything you can tell this room that we can do for you? Um, We have finally, after 43
4: years of campaigning, managed to get a uh, a UN Human Rights Council session, November 24th. It's it's only taken four decades, but we're there. And um, what I would encourage everyone to do is please, keep calling your representatives, keep using your voices, and ensure that everyone stands unequivocally with the people and not the regime of Iran.
3: All right, thank you. Can I say something? Can I add one thing before you going? may? there was a women's march in New York, everywhere, Washington DC. I was part of women's march because the slogan was My Body, My Choice. Many Western female politicians when it comes to Islamic Republic and Afghanistan, they never say my body, my choice. They say to Islamic Republic and Taliban? Where you know, my body is your choice. Stop doing that. You can call for an international women's march for women of Iran and Afghanistan. We can take to the streets when women's march in Iran and Afghanistan is bloody. Let's do it here in New York, in America. Let's take to the streets and show our solidarity and sisterhood to the women of Iran and women of Afghanistan. Together, we are stronger. And we will win this battle just together. Thank you so much.
0: The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of
5: this content.
0: For many organizations, a commitment to diversity, equity, inclusion is not only a core value, but also a business imperative. And to talk about how leaning into diversity from all angles has the potential to improve employee performance, and impact your company's bottom line, I'm joined by Edna Kane Williams, Executive Vice President and Chief Diversity Officer of AARP, the first person to have this role, who heads up the new diversity, equity, and inclusion group focused on workforce, workplace, and marketplace strategies. Welcome, Edna, and since we're at the Washington Post, I have to mention that AARP was recently mentioned atop workplace by the Washington Post for the fifth year in a row, congratulations.
5: Thank you, I have to say AARP is a great place to work. Well, to begin
0: with, let's set the scene here for the importance of having diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, you know, uh, a lot of people are calling it DEI now for short because it's becoming so common. So this role is a position within an organization and why it's important to activate it across an organization. I mean, the data tells the story, right? A, A more diverse workforce is more effective, profitable, and successful,
5: right? Uh, and I hope that um, you'll uh, uh, forgive me because I'm going to really evangelize around Go for the it. importance <laughs> of diversity, equity, and inclusion now and in the future. But you're absolutely right. Studies show, uh, and really the model, the, the the literature about being a model organization when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, it really insists that it be an enterprise-wide effort and not solely uh, the responsibility of a few. That gets to the heart of the really um, uh, uh, moral compass of an organization that everybody understands, that everybody understands that they have a role. A lot of folks jumped on the DEI bandwagon. There's been a lot happening in this country and the world over the last uh, several years, and they made financial commitments, they may have even made some strategic adjustments, but many didn't make the structural changes.
0: The strategic decisions.
5: Well, the structural changes that can help lead the strategic decisions to make sure that everybody in the organization understands their role. A lot of folks, when you talk about a model DEI organization, recommend that everybody in the organization have a performance objective specifically around diversity, Everybody equity, in and inclusion.
0: So I think often the C-suite assumes that DEI, if it hasn't made those structural changes, is being handled by human resources or even you know, as a public relations issue. So let's talk about the importance of diversity and inclusion being part of the executive team and embedded in those core values of leadership in the organization.
5: Yeah, I'm fortunate at AARP. I uh, report directly to the CEO, um, and I think that's really important. Not all CDOs do, as you mentioned. Some are in HR, some are in communications. But again, elevating it, I'm a part of the executive leadership team of AARP, a very large nonprofit. There's only 10 of us. So I feel confident that I have our CEO, Joanne Jenkins, an African-American woman, um, ear. Uh, I can highlight and prioritize things that I wouldn't if I were layers down. Uh, And I feel that she speaks to the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and is signaling to the organization how important it is because of where I sit. Also, because of where I sit, I have access to our board of directors and and, and and am a part of board of directors meetings and indeed report to the board of directors. And that's important too, that really, the executive and the board function of companies and organizations really need to demonstrate very visibly and intentionally that diversity, equity, and inclusion is in, is important. I'll talk about how uh, we're seeing some shifts in that in a little bit. But it's really, again, being a model organization, that's a key component.
0: So let's talk about how um, equity is playing a role within a I pre- I mean, that video that we saw before about the red chicken coop, about how your organization was created with the mission of empowering people to choose how they live as they age, it's even more relevant today. And the whole concept of aging Um, and I think not moving from retirement to how you choose to thrive in in older age is even more relevant. So you're thinking not about only the company's strategies in terms of gender and LGBT audience, but still with that strong focus on age discrimination as an issue of equity and closing the gap
5: of health and wealth and all those disparities. Sure, age uh, is an important... Piece of the DEI spectrum, although surveys have shown that many companies don't include age. So we certainly, as AARP, elevate and focus on that along with. Uh, I don't even say minority anymore, multicultural audiences, as you said, LGBTQ, we're launching new initiatives around the disability community. Um, But I do wanna point out that it's so important when we talk about this, you you use the the term uh, choosing, and uh, I think it's important for us to remember that not everybody, because of their life circumstances, necessarily have a choice. Um, I'm from North Philadelphia and I was talking to uh, a friend I haven't seen in a while, and we both grew up on the same block. And she said, you know, it's so important that we got away from the block. But not everybody did, not everybody. She talked about it as almost it was, it, it was an option, it was an election. But really not everybody has that choice. So what I'm most proud about the work at AARP is that in looking at aging, in looking at helping people to, to age as best they can, that we don't make assumptions about an, uh, a privilege, that not everybody is gonna age or grow old the same. Clearly, our founder, Ethel Percy Andrus, understood that when she found her uh, colleague living in a chicken coop. So we have a lot of focus on uh, uh, disparities, both racial, both um, income-based, to recognize that that will take extra effort to ensure that they have the same uh, opportunities that others do. So
0: DEI has always been activated across AARP. You've been working on this for years, but this chief diversity officer is a new role. So how are you operationalizing DEI within um, your leadership?
5: So it's, it's, it's a real opportunity. I was promoted uh, last March, March of 2021, and it is the first Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion that AARP has had. Uh, we have a, a, a decades, multiple decades-long involvement in uh, advocacy for multicultural communities. Uh, our AARP Foundation is devoted, designed, to focus on uh, poverty and low income. So we have, we have deep roots. Our founder, again, Ethel Percy Andrus, she was one of the first, she was a, a school principal in a school back in Los Angeles in the early part of the 1900s that was really diverse for its time, had had significant African-American uh, uh, students. So she embodied that and infused the, the mission of AARP to reflect her concern that we always understand that, that they didn't talk about it as diversity back then but that, that diversity is so important.
0: You speak a lot, you talk to a lot of leaders from other companies, what are some of the obstacles that you're finding or, or hearing about about preventing organizations from
5: reaching those DEI goals? Well, and I'm looking around because there's so many leaders in this right. room. I'm hoping that I can really uh, 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 inspire some folks. Uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, um, it can be cyclical. You know, uh, We all know the, the, uh, uh, epi- the events of a couple of years ago, the murder of George Floyd being one of them, where lots of companies came off of the sidelines, devoted dollars, there was lots of media attention. Uh, to diversity, equity, inclusion, how important it was. There was an, it was an explosion of people hired in this role. At one point on LinkedIn, it was like the most uh, 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 talked about and popular uh, new staff role for And folks. educational programs too about. And, uh, right, trainings you know. and, and the whole bit. And yet I see earlier this year that um, folks um, are now cautioning, well, maybe not say diversity. Maybe use this word instead of that word. Or we don't have to say it's DEI because, you know, obviously there's a lot of polarization in the country. Um, I don't want to even get into CRT and critical race theory, but it has broadened the conversation to be um, almost, is this a good thing? Uh, and I really, uh, one, am I'm very impatient with that kind of uh, uh, semantic gamesmanship. or or trying to uh, diminish how important this is for our country, our families, our organizations now. If we don't get this right, if we don't bring more people into the conversation, if we're not honest about what we're talking about, um, uh, it's gonna be very hard. And so I think that's a challenge for uh, uh, CEOs and others who, who try to manage the, 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 the winds of opinion, uh, because some this is not necessarily popular um, in all uh, uh, facets right now. Uh, there's a lot of pushback. Um, there's a lot of, of sort of shrinking, like, well, maybe don't, let's not go big. Let's go um, uh, smaller and take our time. And while this is a marathon, not a sprint, it's long term. You have to be in it to win it for the long term. I really encourage people to challenge that kind of thinking. Um, and I'm not being partisan one way or the other. Diversity really does include all. So I think that's one challenge we've had is to really communicate that we're talking about everybody. We're talking about everybody and not um, positioning groups um, in competition, although at the same time, I think we need to recognize the vast disparities um, that exist and COVID and the pandemic really revealed a lot of them, although it's really interesting in uh, the last year that the numbers have really shifted. So in short, recommending that they focus on um, resisting the notion that this is cyclical and that they, they have to wax and wane. Uh, and also recognizing that um, there are a lot of uh, challenges that CEOs need to uh, be prepared for, and one of them we talked about is age, and now we have, for the first time in history, five generations working in one workforce. That's really, never happened before is gonna take, and that's a part of the diversity spectrum. Um, People, you know, Gen X, Gen Z, millennials, boomers, and even the silent generation that are coming back into the workforce either because their retirement didn't work out the way they thought or because they're just bored and want to do something else.
0: So as we close, as you said, we have so many leaders here in this room. What advice do you give to other organizations, including the leaders in this room, who are really looking to make DEI a business imperative? What are the few things that they could start working on right now?
5: Well, yeah, and I always start with business imperative. When I'm talking to com- companies, I also think it's a moral imperative. I, I talked about model organizations um, in-, in terms of being a, a DEI or a-, a group. One is Uh, the long-term nature of this. This is not a two or three-year effort. It's long-term. Again, executive and board support is so important. Sufficient resources. Everybody in the organization understanding that they have a role and being explicit about that role. But fifth, uh, uh, having metrics and and success measures so you can demonstrate to people why this is is helping the bottom line, why it's helping your teams work more effectively. This can't be a soft science kind of thing, although it is in in a lot of ways, but you need to collect data and metrics, be able to demonstrate that you're being successful, or at least being intentional. I think failure is fine, and we do fail a lot in this space, but being clear about where you're trying to get, even even if you have to try multiple things to get there.
0: Yeah, and I think if you set that as a metric of a performance review, kind of sends the signal to everybody that you're taking it very seriously. Seriously, and that you're going to be
5: rigorous about it. This isn't soft show.
0: Yeah. Well, as you said, inclusion is increasingly becoming more important, not just as a moral imperative, but in creating a positive working culture and, and a productive workplace for everybody, but among employees,
5: but also to a company's bottom line. Right, and there's been research that shows that companies that are more diverse from their uh, workforce uh, aspect do better. They do better in terms of profits, if they're, you know, as a part of the the stock market, they do better in terms of their teams and uh, 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 their effectiveness and impact. We've seen a lot just in the last couple of of days about people uh, wanting companies and organizations to speak to their sort of social mission um, uh, 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 interests.
0: Yeah. And Nikane williams Executive Vice President and the first Chief Diversity Officer at AARP. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank Thank you. And now, back to Washington Post Live.
1: I'm Suat McKinnett, International Security Correspondent here at the Washington Post, and I am very pleased and honored to have um, um, my wonderful colleague here, uh, Barkha Dutt. She's one of the most known journalists in India and she's also a contributing uh, columnist at the Washington Post. Welcome, Barkha. Thank you very much. Barkha, we just saw in the introduction video the case uh, of Bilkis Banu. And in the end, you ask the question, um, should any woman's fight for justice end like this? Could you tell us who is Bilkis Banu and what does this case show and say about the, the cases and the lives of women in India and of Muslims in India?
6: Thank you, Suad, and good evening, everybody. Thank you very much uh, for turning out in uh, such large numbers to hear this conversation. My answer, however, is going to be a little bit complex. Who is Bilkis Banu? Bilkis could be any one of us. She could be any one of us women who has experienced sexual assault of the most horrific, unimaginable kind. She was 19 years old when she was gang raped by a group of 11 men in 2002, in the backdrop of anti-Muslim riots that had taken place in Gujarat. She was pregnant, three months pregnant, and she had a three-year-old baby. As the mob came for her, the baby in her womb obviously didn't survive. Her three-year-old daughter, Saleha, her head was smashed with a stone. As Bilkis was raped and lay on the ground bleeding, the men then split up and raped her mother. The men made the mother witness the rape of the daughter, and daughter witnessed the rape of the mother. Bilkis fought. She fought for 17 years, and the Indian justice system actually worked. The men were sentenced to life imprisonment. In India's history, she is the rape survivor to have, been re- to have been granted by the Supreme Court exemplary compensation in 2019. However, However, now- the men were released then, right? Now is the horrific part. Yeah. A few months ago, the men who did this to her, who were supposed to spend the rest of their life in prison,
1: yeah.
6: were released by a government decision as part of a special program to show leniency to prisoners, and all 11 of them walked out and they walked out to garlands and sweets. And one of the legislators who was part of the decision uh, to release these men, he said in an interview to my platform that these are men of good values. He referenced their caste, and he said, they're Brahmins, they're men of good values. It made me very angry. I'm not usually an activist journalist. I believe in letting the story speak for itself. This is one of the few stories I've actually run an advocacy campaign on, because I did not see another side.
1: And do you think they also were released because she was a Muslim woman, that, uh, did that play, play a role in all of this?
6: So this is where I'm going to give you an answer that's, that's a little bit complex and I want your understanding. And maybe just two minutes to let me explain. Please go ahead. Are there issues with religious minorities in India today? Yes. For me, the biggest two issues are the following. Uh, We have one of the most powerful uh, elected governments in recent history, completely democratically elected, I should uh, underline. There's nothing about seizing power here or, or a flawed system. This is what the people of India have willed, and it's an extremely powerful government in terms of how many seats it has. However, the ruling party does not have a single Muslim member in parliament, and to me... That is a problem. In a country where there are 220 million Muslims, that's a nation by itself. That is a problem. The other problem is we've seen all manners of literally sort of uh, right-wing nuts, I would call them, make hate speeches that I believe that those in power have not done enough to shut down. However, I want to say something a little complex here. When I travel to the West, there's a broad stroke in the Western media about India. The cliches I usually hear are Muslims under Modi, India in the age of Modi. There's a kind of generalization and no granularity in actually trying to know us. Who are we? We're 1.3 billion people. We're many things all at once. We have issues that we raise our voices against, but we also have extraordinary syncretism. We have diversity, we have pluralism. And just as we talk about Bilkis, one more sentence and I'll I'll shut up, in the last, 12 hours, I was up all night before I got to the conference here, came the report of um, a young woman called Shraddha. She had been uh, killed by her boyfriend. Uh, He chopped her up into 35 parts. He minced the intestines. He stored them in the refrigerator in his home, where he then brought other women to date. In this case, the perpetrator was Muslim. The victim was Hindu. I make this point to say two things. We do fight and we do speak against injustices as we see them. But please try and have a more granular understanding of our nation. And please, as women, let us understand that the fight for women's rights is universal. You've all just been through Roe versus Wade. In many ways, my country is freer on abortion.
1: So let's acknowledge that women are fighting I actually everywhere. would pick up on this point because you wrote a piece yes. for the Washington Post mm-hmm. where you spoke about the prism of prejudice that some Western journalists when they come to India that you know, they look at India from a, a perspective with some prejudices. And I would like to ask you what exactly do you mean by that? You mentioned a few points, but could you tell us a bit more?
6: There's an assumption that is as an Indian woman I will by definition be less empowered than many of the women sitting in this hall today. That is the assumption I confronted when I was a student here at grad school at Columbia. I grew up in New York, that was the assumption my schoolmates had. I was a brown girl from India and somehow I was less of a feminist. Oh, I must be really oppressed. I must uh, only be married by an arranged marriage. They couldn't even imagine that I'm not married and I'm not. I grew up with the same prejudice, by the way. Yeah. yeah the broad stroking, and the asymmetry of power, right? Can I come here and look at America only through the prism of race, guns, Roe versus Wade? No, I lived here, I love this country, I recognize that it's many things all at once. I ask for my country to be recognized in the same way. So,
1: but when you cover cases like Bilkis, or you spoke now about the new case, um, this, actually also does something with you, right? I mean, you have been attacked for some of the coverage you did. Can you tell us what uh, kind of attacks have you faced? What do you have to deal with at the moment covering these
6: things? Suad, I'm sure you've experienced this. I think any intelligent, independent-minded woman, no matter where in the world, has been intimidated or there's been an attempt to intimidate us and attempt to silence us. And nowhere is uh, this more manifest than it is on social media, where you actually have organized, well-oiled machines coming after you, almost like lynch mobs. I call them virtual lynch mobs. And I remember a time when I, in the context of a story I had reported, uh, where I actually spoke about uh, sort of how criticism does not mean that I'm anti-national. I'm a proud Indian, and if I criticize uh, a policy, let's say, it doesn't make me an anti-national, which is a word that's bandied about far too easily. My phone number was shared on an escort site, on a, on, on a site for uh, to hire sex workers. And I was then sent about 5,000 uh, dick pics, nude pics, rape threats, um, threats to shoot me, I got police security briefly, and I was very uncomfortable about it, you know, with it as a reporter, and so I gave it up. And I remembered, funnily enough, I was listening to Hillary Clinton moderate earlier today, and she'd come to India and I'd interviewed her. And I was asking her, she was Secretary of State then, and she quoted Eleanor Roosevelt and she said, Barkha, you have to grow a skin as thick as the hide of a rhinoceros. My challenge is this. I think I have that thick skin, but how do you keep the thick skin but still keep your heart molten? Because we need to be tough outside and soft inside to tell the stories we do.
1: So what do you do then? How do you keep the thick skin, but how how do you also take care of yourself? I spent
6: two years traveling across India reporting uh, on the pandemic in my country um, at a time when no channels, there were no boots on the ground. I I traveled 30,000 kilometers by road from the north to the south of India, spending 130 days consecutively on the road. And I realized that the answer is in returning journalism to people. Everywhere from New Delhi to New York, people have one complaint about the media. They don't see their lives reflected in the news that they consume. And I committed and recommitted to making journalism about people. And I think the answer to those who try and silence us, apart from the thick skin, is to be powerful storytellers and tell a story so good that nobody can afford to ignore you. I
1: have to ask you this question because you kept talking about the people who try to silence you and organized mobs uh, um, uh, online. Do you have the impression that any of this is organized by the government to silence you? No, I
6: would not say that because I, I have no evidence to, uh, to actually make that point. But I think I've studied um, sort of online behavior enough uh, to, to, to find that independent minded people get crushed between ideological camps. Um, you know, I always say we talk about free speech. We just had Salman Rushdie, his Indian born New Yorker, stabbed for his work. Yeah. Um, more than free speech, what we need to re emphasize not just in India, but I would say everywhere in the world, is the need for a free interrogating mind. And as women, we are going to be resented for A, having free independent minds, for rejecting tribalism, for not being co-opted by any camp, for being ferociously me, individualistic, um, for, for speaking truth to power, and for being inconvenient, for being a pain in the ass, for being a troublemaker. I plan to be all of those.
1: <laughs> good for you, good for you. So what can we do, we as fellow journalists, but also what could international organizations for journalists do to support you to be still the troublemaker and to you know, not give up on all of this, despite all the pressure? I think that we need to, to be respectful of
6: each other's complexities, complexity and nuance has become a bad word in the age of polarity. I think we have to acknowledge that as women, we fight everywhere. And sometimes we fight in the space that's supposed to be the safest, our private spaces, in relationships where we think we're going to be safe and we end up in abusive relationships. In India, I'm fighting to legalize marital rape. It's, it's been a sort of a space I've done a lot of work on. But if we just look at Another country from the perch of superiority. We assume ourselves to be culturally superior, democratically superior, superior in some ways of, you know, we have a better track record of civil liberty. What it's going to do is actually diminish the space for these conversations back home because it's gonna get everyone's back up and people are gonna say, Hey, dear Americans, do we have a right to also opine? about what's happening in your country. And once it's a conversation between equals, that is a much more productive conversation. On journalism, I would only say, Swad, and you are a brilliant, brilliant security correspondent who has covered terror groups. You know this. There is no excuse for bad journalism. We are not activists. That's somebody else's job. We are not politicians. And we are not supplicants to power. We have to be interrogatory, we have to be unafraid, but it has to be through our work. And the lines between news and opinion have blurred to a degree where people have stopped respecting and trusting media. And if we want trust back in media, in India or in the United States of America, actually we need to go back to the basics. We need to be reporters.
1: Speaking about the basics, how much did your mother play a role in who you became? Your mother was the first war correspondent in India, and um, she passed away when you were very young. But how did her work influence your life and what you're doing today? If you could give us a short answer. Yes,
6: thank you for that question. I know the time is up, so I'll keep it short. My mother was the first generation of women journalists uh, in India. When she applied for a job, the editor told her there were no jobs available in the newsroom for women. She was free to cover the flower show in the city. She grew up to be the head of bureau at the Hindustan Times which is one of India's major newspapers a few years later war broke out between India and Pakistan she asked for a chance to report from the front line she was told that there was no chance that a woman would be allowed to be a war correspondent she left with her notepad and pen in the 1960s in a sari to the war front where she had a cousin in the military and became by accident and by will and by stubbornness, India's first woman war correspondent. There is the
1: stubbornness, there is the stubbornness. The
6: stubbornness, and three decades later, um, she was already dead, I became a war correspondent at the front line and I had to really fight as a woman to get to the front line. Our life is a constant battle. Every day is a negotiation. So we should be kind to ourselves and we should encourage women to be selfish. We've been romanticized for too long as being sacrificing, as being people who put others before ourselves. I want women everywhere to pursue ambition without apology and happiness without regret.
1: Thank you very much, Barka. <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks for listening. You can find more conversations from our Global Women's Summit by searching Washington Post Live wherever you listen. Visit WashingtonPostLive.com to register for upcoming programs.